Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What he said was... The president. Yes, the president said that he knew what he signed up for. But it hurts anyways. And I was, it made me cry because I heard him stumbling on trying to remember my husband's name. And that was hurting me the most because if my husband is out here fighting for our country and he risks his life for our country, why can't you remember his name? Welcome to Politics, hosted by an American political journalist and a New Zealand comedian. Say hello to the nice people out there, Jeb. Hello. I'm Tim Bat. That's Jeb Lund. Uh, we try to get together once a week and just dig over what's happened in the news over the last seven days. We're a little bit late because uh, I've been a little bit sick and out of town and stuff, and Jeb still is out of town, but we've bungled a solution together. How's your out-of-townness going? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm I'm an hour behind when I normally am, so I keep I think I'm waking up earlier just because my body clock is saying, like, hey, it's 9 o'clock, and, I'm, and it's like, absolutely, it is not 9 o'clock. But uh, it's great. I'm I'm here visiting my my mother and stepfather, and they are grandparenting hard. I'm sure they're ruining your kid as we speak. Oh yeah, no, we we made a special trip to Walmart just to get the little uh, figurines. The uh, there's a brand in America called Little People uh, that are just uh, they're they're little plastic uh, uh, toys that go in like if you you know he uh, I'll, I'll give a specific example. He has a dump truck that he likes, and there's a a, a Little People toy driver for it so we went to walmart to see if we could get some more of the little people to put in there so he could have uh people driving his trucks and uh, there weren't any and instead we came home with like 15 vehicles <laughs> he has accrued more infrastructure than puerto rico has right now just rocking around on on the carpet that he's playing with that's a sad state of affairs. Um, and speaking of little people, we will be talking about uh, differently abled students' rights being stripped from them by Betsy DeVos later on. But uh, the first thing I want to kick off with this week, Jeb, is a story that has permeated the news, which is four U.S. Special Forces soldiers who were killed in Niger on the 4th of October on a routine patrol. And this has spawned like a series of different uh, interconnected news stories. The first one is that nobody knew that the U.S. had a force in Niger. Uh, secondly, that Donald Trump hadn't contacted the families of the fallen. Third, that he got caught out when he was asked about this and then on the spot in a press conference made up some bullshit about how Obama didn't contact the families of the fallen, which he was immediately called on by the press. Uh, then there was a news story about Trump eventually ringing the widow of uh, Sergeant David Johnson, who... Uh, coincidentally the call was on speakerphone in a car and there was a congresswoman with an earshot uh, who then reported on the news that Trump was extremely insensitive in the call and uh, Johnson's widow has since been on the news I think within the last 24 hours sort of backing up the claims um, that that congresswoman had made and then the kind of 
interconnected final piece of this puzzle is Chief of Staff John Kelly jumping in saying that Obama didn't ring him when his son died in combat and that Trump meant well with his condolence call. And it's, I mean, which one of these stories is the most important, Jeb, and which one will Americans actually care about the most? I think they care about the black congresswoman sassing the president back. I think that's going to be the the thing that is really galvanic and does great for Trump with his base. It's exactly the fight he wants to pick. I think the more important one was Kelly getting in there in the presser and describing uh, the further the further sacralization of the the American military. Uh, he described the phone calls that the the president gives to um, the uh, family members of the fallen as sacred, and that it was a uh, the congresswoman who is again this woman's representative, and evidently the family knew and and wanted to be there. He tried to portray you know her presence there as profaning a sacred right. And then he concluded the press conference by refusing to take any questions from anyone who didn't know a Gold Star family member. And it just it was a very passive way of basically, again, the furtherance of, uh, of elevating the American military to a sacred institution that dare not be questioned. Um, and, and also that uh, that, you know, people who are people who are in that military are citizens plus they are better than average and that people who are related to them are better than average and people who do not have any relation to them are basically have no no calling or standing to question them. And that was something that Sarah Huckabee Sanders followed up on the next day because uh, Kelly had made a completely inaccurate accusation about uh, the representative Federico Wilson. And uh, and Huckabee, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was like, well, if you want to if you want to question a four star Marine general, you can go right ahead. But I just don't think you you, you get to do that. And it's like, no, I mean, he works for me. Like, I mean, just by the definition of how this works, like his fucking job. And I know that's not really the way it works, but fuck you. I'll question him all I want, especially if he's in a press conference. That should be the spirit of how a a democracy works. And the approach of uh, this person is beyond reproach from um, being able to question what they say. I mean, that's classic authoritarianism, right? Yeah, and and like Masha Gessen, who is a, a Russian American, or maybe she—I don't know if she's an American citizen now. She's Russian-born citizen. Had a really good piece in the New Yorker, going, saying, you know, hey, this sounds very familiar. Uh, you know, and growing up in in Russia, where we venerated the dead heroes, it didn't—you didn't even have to stay alive. They were automatically better people than everybody who was still left alive. There's kind of two separate but parallel conversations happening here yeah and sorry there is a bit uh because jeb's on the road there's a bit of an internet delay so sorry if we couldn't bit of cross talk there but the two conversations that are happening is it seems one on the erosion of american civility in public life and that there just used to be a more civil communication occurring um everywhere within american everyday society among the citizens and i kind i i see all the um catastrophizing about how we're, you know everyone's got a shorter attention span and they're being ruder and more combative and uh, everyone's scared because the value system which represented the old America is gone. And I think that's always been something that old generations worry about with the younger generations. And I think it's part of people being afraid of change and um, society changing things. You know, gay rights 
very quickly becoming normalized in America and people getting freaked out about that and now they're kind of pushing into new frontiers of trans rights and um, gender fluidity and it makes uh, some people very uncomfortable who were, you know, uh, comfortable with the way that things were before. So there's sort of this thing of changing times and that old thing that people always freak out about society changing. And I can't, I think that that stuff is maybe a bit over-dramatised about the... Um, sort of doomsday chicken little talk about how terrible society is now I think that norms are getting challenged and people who were disempowered before are trying to get some power and it's freaking people out I think that's guiding a lot of it but then the the sort of other parallel conversation that's happening at the same time which is mixing in with this is the relationship of the military to American civilian life and the I, Rachel Maddow actually wrote a really interesting book uh probably close to like a decade ago, I think, or maybe sort of five, six years ago called Drift about how there's been this enormous change between uh, when people were drafted and the government had to be effectively a lot more accountable for what was going on with the soldiers. And now we're getting into this zone where so much of war is privatized and you've got um, things like Blackwater and, uh, operations that are occurring that the public don't even know about and you kind of can't question any component of it because that's treasonous and just trust us. Uncle Sam's looking out for your best interests, but how dare you question anything that's even tangentially related to the military. And that's fucking freaky. And that's one of those things that will happen, I think, gradually and it'll be death by a thousand cuts. But it really feels like we're seeing that play out in real time or at least from an outside observer in the bottom of the world looking in it looks like that very scary thing rather than the former phenomenon that I was talking about just before uh, that thing is real and that thing I think is way scarier right yeah no the 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 very start of all this the you know the American actions in Niger or Niger I don't know you know whichever people are more comfortable with I mean that being authorized into the blanket AUMF is indicative of of another just sort of uh, to borrow that uh, that Maddow book name drift of where our intervention is taking place. I mean, we like to think that, oh, my goodness, you know, we're at war in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and it's been it's gone on for such a terrible long time. Isn't that horrible? But, you know, that leaves off like 10 other sites around the globe where we are currently engaging in some sort of active policy. And, and so you're finding out like just th- this crisis is making people go, wait, what the fuck were we doing there? What 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 was our role? And Kelly kind of coming in and pedantically saying, well, you know, we're providing assistance to these people to fight ISIS-affiliated groups. Well, I mean, that's that is a pretext for engagement pretty much anywhere. Like there, there's one continent where that is would not justify some level of engagement. So that could be a bigger issue. I mean, it really comes down to which you find more terrifying. Um, basically unrestricted uh, military action abroad or the kind of ominous uh, uh, prefiguring of, you know, uh, greater military uh, lack of accountability in terms of domestic politics. Which do you think is a a bigger threat? It seems like one is more tangible, which is the international influence and movements of the military abroad, but one is a little bit, a little bit closer to home, obviously. The domestic issue worries me more because we have we have basically insulated all military things with this, uh, uh, you know, this sort of default respect. I think Matt Brunig, um, 
who has a, a really good Patreon and, and uh, a little sort of like lefty uh, think tank that's all crowdfunded. It's very exciting, and I, I, they seem to be doing really fun stuff so far, and I, I'm encouraged to see where they go next. He had a joke, w- which was um, when, uh, when one member of the military uh, is, uh, disagrees with another member of the military, who do you respect? Philosophers have no answer. <laughs> and that has been the experience of uh, retired General John Kelly kind of stepping into the fold here as well, right? Because now you've almost by default got this uh, esteemed military figure in John Kelly, who's kind of this hero of the right and has all his medals. And he's almost now, it, it, the news is sort of positioning it into a situation where he's almost going up against the widow of Le David Johnson, this um, fallen soldier who was a sergeant over there, who, who was one of the four Green Berets who was killed. Um, I've just seen in the last sort of 12, 24 hours that his uh, his widow has been going on uh, news shows now, um, basically expressing her despair and her extreme sadness around how this whole thing has been handled. She hasn't been able to see um, her husband's body at all uh, and and sort of has been denied any closure around that. But beyond that, it seems like just the communication all around with the family of this fallen soldier has been absolutely terrible. And in this case, it literally came from the top down. Um, like she backed up the reports from uh, from the Florida congresswoman that it seems like Trump forgot the soldier's name in the middle of the call, the condolence call to the family. Um, and yes, it is yucky that we're talking about a condolence call, which is a incredibly uh, private and I would definitely say quite sacred thing that happens. Um, but I mean, this is kind of the new world we live in and we do know the details of that call now, rightly or wrongly, and they're fucking horrible and ghoulish and disgusting. But they sort of back up everything we already knew about this horrible man who occupies the Oval Office now. Well, one of the things I've been doing since I've been here, been home, is I where I grew up, most of my friends had uh, parents in the military, one or, or two sometimes. And so I, I've talked to a few people who are uh, former military, and, and they all kind of have the same take. And I don't want to I don't want to name names or put too many words in their mouths. But uh, basically, their attitude is not one of great respect for Trump, but they they all esteem General Kelly just as they esteem General Mattis. I think those are both men who are probably pretty honorable people. Uh, I, I'm, I can't explain why they have the jobs that they do, nor can I explain why they are doing the things that they are doing in their jobs. Um, uh, but, you know, the the, th- the thing I was sort of talking about with them was that, uh, you know, look, Trump doesn't have to make these calls. They know that Trump doesn't have to make these calls. The protocol for these kinds of revelations to the family is that you generally send, uh, you know, an immediate commanding officer. If you can find a friend that the person served with, you'll you'll send that. You generally send uh, somebody who has like some kind of grief training and then you send somebody who has legal training to let you know what your rights are in terms of acquiring your benefits and where, you know, what kind of burial you can seek, et cetera. Uh, the, the president doesn't have to do this. And this is sort of, so where I come down on this is a lot like where I come down on when you find out that a, a politician has had an extramarital affair. You know, if, if that's fine with their family and if they don't rail against people who do it, that's great. Uh, but if you want to be a hypocrite about it, then I'm going to get on your case. And in Trump's case, you know, he wants to call out Obama. He, he, 
he's been he's been extraordinarily insulting of generals and then turned right around and said that only you know he's the only president who truly respects the military so if you're going to put that mantle on yourself it's like the defender of the military and the most honorable and reverent of presidents and then drop the ball on this shit and then when you finally pick it up fumble it fumble the the kid's name uh, say that he knew what he was getting into and then describe the grief that you're it, I think he described it in one interview as tremendous grieving and he was explaining like oh these are very difficult calls to do I mean the grieving is just tremendous uh, if you're going to do that then I think everybody has a right to go after you um, so like I think for for military people they're seeing like well this shouldn't be blown up this should be a private thing uh, but I think that uh, the president does not get the benefit of the doubt anymore when he insists that we applaud him for being more reverent of the military than anyone else. If this thing becomes public, uh, and it's the, the, the widow's right. I mean, she wants to, to scream to the, the heavens about it. She is the one who has lost something. It's her grief. It's her privilege. So I don't think we can ding her for, for politicizing it. And I think that's what some, you know, some of the military people I've, I've spoken to. And then some of the commentary I've seen is, is, well, she's profaning this by making it public. And, you know, honestly, I, I don't that doesn't that doesn't scan for me. She can do whatever she wants to do with her grief. No, and the <clears throat> reporting that I'd seen around the <clears throat> rather the uh, commentary that I'd seen around this was sort of going after the congresswoman for making the um, details of that call public. And that was before it was publicly known how the family felt about it. Um, but I think now it's pretty clear that they are fine with her acting as a bit of a um you know a public mouthpiece she is there to represent her district her people and it sounds like she was doing just that by echoing the sentiment which we are now seeing directly um from the widow of the sergeant but i mean this is a, a um more immediate issue and it's a cultural issue the wider military issue of what's going on with u.s soldiers in niger has still not been answered whatsoever uh, and it'll be interesting to see if that's just something that dissipates in the news cycle or if this can sustain enough for reporters to keep on about it. Because I've been surprised with some stuff that's just gone by the wayside, because it, which are seemingly important issues, but there's just so much ever-evolving shit coming out of this dump truck of, a, of, a, uh, of an administration that it's hard to sort of keep focus on one thing. So how much faith do you have, Jeb, that we will... Um, by the end of the year, have a clearer picture of what the U.S. forces that maybe maybe are still in Niger are doing there. Well, I, I, the the line that exists now is that we are providing uh, support for battling elements of ISIS within the country because, uh, like, just the the sheer vastness of Africa, it's difficult. If you have like insurgent forces, sometimes even within your own country, it's difficult to get to them with the resources you have, especially if your military is uh, reliant on buying secondhand Soviet crap, uh, which you know happens to be the case for large parts of the continent. I, I, I think we're not going to get much more clear vision of that. And I don't think it's going to have a lot of public opinion impact. We are very comfortable as a country with for lack of a better word, the Vietnamization of a conflict and a problem. We send in, quote unquote, advisors. And they're, you know, like in the, in the Vietnam example, they get off the helicopter and they're telling, um, you know, the, the South Vietnamese, uh, the Arvin forces where to go. And then eventually they get overmatched and we step in. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that same process playing out. Although what we, the amount that we see in the, the papers is, 
uh, probably not going to be particularly vast. If, if for nothing, if for no reason, then that doesn't move a lot of units. And eventually, the journalists who cover it, they'll do a couple of good investigative pieces. And if people don't find that kind of eye catching, uh, that doesn't move the needle. They're going to move on to the next bit of news that will. And unfortunately, this administration is really good at providing that eye catching news. So, I mean, foreign policy just isn't that sexy for a lot of people anyway. Which seems like a vastly inappropriate yet somewhat uh, poetic point to end us talking about this this bit of news and move on to another one. So we're going to take a short break and then talk about the cartoon villain that is Betsy DeVos after this. I want to go back to the Individual with Disabilities and Education Act. That's a federal civil rights law. So do you stand by your statement a few minutes ago that it should be up to the states whether to follow it? The law must be followed, federal law must be followed where federal dollars are in, in play. So were you unaware when I just asked you about the IDEA that it was a federal law? I may have confused it. You're listening to Politics, a podcast hosted by two friends, both alike in dignity, in 2017 where we lay our scene. And Betsy DeVos is the billionaire education secretary slash, for my money, just a, a cartoon villain devised by someone who doesn't have any imagination. She's like a crazy Michelle Bachman. This is a woman who only narrowly got confirmed like by historic margins because it took the vice president's deciding vote to get her across the line just to just to get in. She had the most blistering confirmation process I think anyone's ever seen where she wasn't aware of half the laws that pertain to her portfolio. This is a crazy lady, and she's done a pretty good job at staying out of the news so far, huh, Jeb? Yeah, and it, one thing I will say, and this was something that came up on a, another podcast I did, she, uh, any time that she has traveled and she has taken a private airplane, she's taken her own, and she's paid for it out of pocket on her own. Uh, so, you know, she she's at least, if nothing else, good at keeping a low profile, maybe because she recognizes that when a camera is in front of her face, she's not really good at answering what the question is about. Hey, well, that's great. Credit where it's due. Yeah. She's seen Tom Price and his wife fuck up royally and that splashed around the newspapers and she's learned from that. So that's great. Um, she's in the news this week because, uh, well, actually, there's there's a, a bit in the Washington Post that puts it pretty succinctly and I've copied the paragraph here. So I'll just read it. This is from uh, Moraya uh, Balinget probably butchering that name, sorry, from the Washington Post. The Education Department has rescinded 72 policy documents that outline the rights of students with disabilities as part of the Trump administration's effort to eliminate regulations it deems superfluous. So what's actually been cut in amongst this mix is um, still being reviewed by education experts at the moment, and some of it does seem to be... uh, somewhat outdated definitions that have been on the book since the 1980s. So it's possible that some of the stuff swept up in this uh, is genuinely superfluous. But what we know for sure is that some of it is guidance around how federal funds for special education should be spent by schools. And particularly when you're dealing with someone like Betsy DeVos, who has sort of made it her mission to almost out loud, she wants to dismantle the public education system and voucherize it. I mean... This seems like something we should be worried about, right? Yeah, I'm the uh, so the the current status is that the the there is an appeal, um, I think, by multiple attorneys general to uh, kind of stay the scrapping of some of these guidelines because what they really are are just guidelines for where to apportion personnel and money. 
but the uh, the Trump administration wants to effectively suspend these through, I think, 2019. Uh, I think January 1st to 2019. And that's a really long time to have no idea where you're going to make disbursements, uh, especially, yeah, given the, the broad hostility toward regulation of any kind and, and especially the effect on disabled kids. I mean, this is something that maybe people in other countries don't know, but, you know, the 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 idea of uh, of providing facilities and, and uh, infrastructure for disabled people is something, you know, like being mandatory is something that uh, occurred in, in my living memory. I mean, it, and for my parents' generation, it was entirely possible for disabled people to effectively, like, go to, uh, you know, parallel, dismal uh, schools and then effectively live isolated lives until they died. Uh, and so the concern is that we're heading back there where if you are a disabled kid, you are going to wind up not being schooled with your peers, even if you don't provide, a, you know, like a significant distraction toward class time. Uh, because the goal is to try to get people with disabilities, if they can, they can be in a, you know, like a conventional classroom, to integrate them in that classroom so they have social ties and they don't feel isolated and they don't feel like they're getting second class opportunities. And so even, you know, a year of, well, who knows what happens? I mean, that's a year of, you know, if, if you are a 12 year old kid, that's a 12th of your life or I guess a 13th of your life going forward that may wind up in limbo. Or maybe you know materially disadvantaged because uh, you know the the deconstruction deconstruction of the administrative state hasn't figured out how most efficiently to underfund your feeling you know like an equally valid citizen. Let me ask you this, Jeb, as an American, what's your feeling about how? the interaction of the federal and the state system with looking after disabled students. Is it a similar situation to uh, sort of racial equality where it, it is it is vastly different depending on what state you go into and what laws get enforced and therefore um, federal at least guidelines, if not federal laws, have to be imposed across the board just to make sure that these students um, aren't being disadvantaged just because of what border that they are born into? I don't personally have a lot of uh, experience with this. I do have a family member who works with disabled kids and said that, uh, you know, going from a bluer state to a redder state, uh, that there was a, you know, noticeable depreciation in quality and, and number of resources. But I don't know if that if that's reflective of the state that he was in already funding stuff that was supplemental to what was provided through federal statute. Uh, I But... I would be extraordinarily surprised if dismantling these kinds of regulations and standards on a federal level didn't see like wholly unequal application on the state level. Uh, you know, you would see states like California and New York taking up the slack and you would not see states mm -hmm. like Mississippi, Alabama and Florida and Louisiana do that if for nothing more than that they have extraordinarily low tax bases and they have. Yeah gerrymandered uh, uh, you know solid conservative majorities that you know if they do do things it will it would likely be on that kind of smoke and mirrors thing of like well we're going to take block grants and we're going to see who can provide these services more efficiently and even with improvement for less money and you know just sort of a, a chunk of money disappears into some contractor and we find out three years later that you have a 
you know, kids in wheelchairs just sitting and watching it you know, like the Lion King on a loop in an on air conditioned yeah. yeah. uh, Quonset hut. It, it's scary how uh, that far flung vision seems very possible to me now with this current administration. The thing that freaks me out about Betsy DeVos is it's kind of a similar parallel as what used to be considered the case and maybe is getting decreasingly so as time goes on between Trump and Pence where it's like, say you get a Rex Tillerson type. He's not a, not a great dude. He is essentially a uh, textbook oil baron. He was the CEO of ExxonMobil for decades, and it's kind of all he knows. But he sort of strikes me as a man without particular ideology, and he's a bit of an empty vessel there to serve Trump. And he's taken um, some severe hits, and he keeps getting up. But he does so in his own version of a pretty dignified way. He... He hasn't massively embarrassed himself so far, and he doesn't seem to be putting forward his own personal ideology or political agenda. But Betsy DeVos seems to have a roadmap for what she wants to achieve, which is really, I mean, there's this very little wiggle room on how to read it will be very detrimental to poor people if her agenda gets enacted. Yeah, no, and, and she's a perfect example of the old Molly Ivins line about uh, George W. Bush. If it fucked up Texas, let's try it on the rest of the country. Uh, the DeVos record in Michigan is dismal. I mean, there is really no educational metric or really economic metric uh, by which it hasn't failed. Uh, so, I mean, you don't you don't need to just wait and see what it would be like. You can go look at Michigan. That was their playground, and they torched it. So let me ask you this question. What is it going to take to change for these people to stop getting in power? Well, that's actually really interesting. I've been thinking about it. Um, you know, if you look at the the assaults that uh, that the attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare were going to, uh, the, the assault that that was going to uh, deliver to uh, Medicaid, if you look at uh, this prospective budget that the Senate has passed that would punch a $1.5 trillion hole in the budget. And uh, in, I'm sorry, $1.5 trillion in, in uh, Medicare and Medicaid combined. Uh, that's going to alert a lot of people to what the, this sort of governance does for them. And if there's one thing that you know you learn over and over again by reading these kind of feature stories on conservatives who have a change of heart, it it only happens when it directly affects. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Them, right? It's it's yeah. like uh it's like Cheney saying like, "Well, I don't really care about uh uh criminalizing marriage equality for LGBT people because my daughter's a lesbian," right? Uh yeah. and there are a lot of conservative people who have a family member on a ventilator or uh, who are reliant on a Medicaid-subsidized jazzy. And I know that during the Tea Party years, you know, you could read those really funny Matt Taibbi pieces where you'd have those people out protesting Obamacare, and they would be in a Medicaid-subsidized scooter, right? But take, yeah. that, but take it away and see what happens. And those people are everywhere. It's not like 
disabled people only live in California. You know, disabled yeah. people are in every state. And, you know, if, if it comes to pass that suddenly they can't, you know, one of, uh, you know, a man or a woman has to quit their job to stay home to take care of their kid because they no longer have the, you know, the, the subsidized caretaker who comes in and, you know, can can change and feed a, a uh, like a housebound child or a housebound senior. The minute they lose that, there is going to be that material effect that they're going to want to vote against. And it's very clear that the Republican Party is going to be the vessel of taking that freedom from them. Well, it seems incredibly sad and dysfunctional that it needs to get right on your doorstep before a change gets made and almost too late from a policy perspective, right? If something's already affecting you, it means the law's been enacted. And, you know, by that stage, it's it's quite a hard thing to change rather than an earlier stage where it's being talked about or planned or voted on. Yeah, although, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the heightened the contradictions rhetoric of the left. I mean, the, the, the sort of the Hillary bots want to blame the, the Bernie bros for saying, like, burn it all down so that people will realize that we need socialized health care. I don't think I know very few Bernie fans who are like that. But there is kind of a point where, you know, there, there's a level of pigheadedness where, you know, you cannot see these broad effects until they happen to you. And, and I mean, is, is it has to be a really, really dark cloud for that to be the silver lining. But if if, you know, if the storm is already rolling in, <laughs> I guess. Well, it's interesting you attribute that to the, um, well, certain sects of the Bernie supporters, and I think rightly so, because this is sort of the edges of the political spectrum that unite the Trump voters and the Bernie supporters, I think, which is just, just as you say, burn the whole damn thing down. And it seems like Trump, particularly within the healthcare debate, with his uh, removal of the federal subsidies that are going to the states and the breaking of the healthcare.gov website so that people can't sign up that he's sort of enacting that thing that got him voted in which is just fuck this whole thing we need to completely break it and then people realize that we need change so it almost seems like that is what trump's doing in certain areas and that's what he's threatening to do by executive order in other areas as well and it's kind of a terrifying way of enacting policy change but, I mean, ultimately, this is the thing that America voted for. This is why Trump is in power right now. You're right. It is just a really dark frame of mind to, to be in to say, listen, you know, the only way you're going to learn that what you want is wrong is by getting what you want and then getting fucked by it. You know, but, uh, it, you know, the the left, if you want to say, uh, if you want to say that a large portion of the left feels this way, I don't think... I, I really, I again personally don't know many people on the left who are at all satisfied with what's going on. I mean, I think everybody would rather go from a state of uh, of low chaos to uh, to improvement rather than descendant into chaos uh, in order to improve. But you know, if if it feels inevitable, the optimistic way of reading it is that Trump is just one step on the progression to a more equitable society because you need somebody like him to embody the wholesale failure of all the lies that people wanted to believe in because it would save them on their tax bill or because they think that there's a magical way to get cheap health care that gives them everything, uh, that there will never be any rationing of, of any kind of resources or that there are no trade-offs in politics. Um, 
you know, maybe maybe you do have to try to shoot the moon and and burn a lot of people very badly before you you go, hey, that's that is not a viable way of doing things. And the only way to uh, to to move forward is to try to build something out of this smoking crater. I don't know. <laughs> I like that rose tinted vision of the future and uh, hopefully it gets enacted after a one term of the Trump administration rather than two. Uh, or sooner, who knows? We still don't know what Bob Mueller's doing at the moment. Uh, but we're going to take a brief break here and we'll return with a bit of a wrap-up of some other stuff that's happening uh, in the American political news cycle at the moment and a little update on what's happening in New Zealand because that's a, a fun little palate cleanser, I think, for people uh, to find about how other little democracies are scrapping away in the corners as well. I, I need to know about the new PM. I need, I need all the deets. I will give you all of those deets in one moment. It is an absolute honour and a privilege to have the ability, as the leader of the New Zealand Labour Party, to form a government for all New Zealanders. Welcome back to Politics, a podcast that is mainly about American politics, but for this section will a little bit be about Kiwi politics, because that's where I live, in New Zealand, where hobbits are from. So, uh, Jeb, we've got a government. Man, it took a while. We had an election like a month ago, and uh, only now has it become obvious who will form the government. Uh, As I think I explained in the last episode, we've got a system called MMP, which is a a coalition form of government where you just have to get a collection of parties to form a simple majority in the House, and they get to claim government. So the interesting situation that's transpired is it looked like the centre-right party, which has been in power for the last nine years, called the National Party, they got the most. Well, they got the most votes of the two majority parties um, or major parties on election night. They beat Labour by ooh, I can't remember exactly how many seats, but it was sort of seven or eight out of our 120 Parliament seats. And uh, then the special votes votes rolled in. We had a huge amount of special votes. It was. I think I remember reading it was as high as maybe 15% of the vote were special votes, which were just um, any votes that were cast outside of the the sort of very regular way that you cast them. So the the example that the majority, the bulk of them were, were people who signed up early and cast their vote uh, all on the same day. They were, they were cast aside as special votes, so they got counted later. So we got that result. Um, about a week after election night. Uh, so anyway, I'm disappointed. I was hoping it was going to be like the uh, that scene in The Simpsons where it shows like all the people voting, like they're they're dropping like a, uh, you know, they're dro- oh the pebbles and the marbles. <laughs> yeah, into like, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the the big glass jar. They drop the pebble in there, and then you know somebody like uh, raises a flag or something. That I was yeah. It it does amaze me how lo-fi the voting process is here in New Zealand and I kind of love it I I am so afraid um, after everything I read about the manipulation or the potential manipulation of voting machines and the Gore-Bush election that like just anything involving a screen or a computer and the election process scares the shit out of me so I am so grateful that our plucky little country still has just pen and paper wherever you are in the country but anyway look the big headline um, article which has been covered everywhere in the world is that our Prime Minister is now uh, Jacinda Ardern uh, who is the leader of the Labour Party and she will be forming a coalition government with uh, her centre left party Labour uh, New Zealand First who picked up enough seats to make themselves the decision maker on who would form the government 
Um, New Zealand First are an interesting... They describe themselves as centrist. I would describe them as right-wing. They're kind of anti-immigration. Uh, New Zealand's flavour of nationalist, which is nationalist light uh, sort of policies where they, they look after old people, but they've got some interesting things around helping out students as well, uh, but they're very kind of anti-immigration and um, got some old-school mentalities about certain issues. They've picked up a whole bunch of power, and in fact, the leader of the New Zealand First Party, Winston Peters, has again managed to negotiate himself the Deputy Prime Ministership, which is insane uh, for the reason that he couldn't even win his own electorate seat. Someone beat him in his own region, and he's now going to be Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister, which is obviously one of the major portfolios you can hold. Um, now, we've also got the now, Greens if, part. If I yeah, may, sorry, like, how, do, how does that happen? Is he just like bound to the, the government buildings like a haint of some kind? Like, Is there a powerful <laughs> hoodoo that allows him to remain like a, a free-floating vapor? Uh, within the the halls of government, yeah. untethered to any kind of like writing or electoral region. Winston Peters is a very smart dude who used to be part of the National Party way back in the day, like 20, 30 years ago. He's very old. He's 72 years old. And when we brought in MMP, which happened in my lifetime, he managed to construct a party which could work with either major political party. It wasn't tethered to a particular left or right ideology. So he can kind of always grab enough seats by old people who forget how MMP works. And they think they're just voting for Winston Peters. But in fact, when the results roll in, he's bringing like seven or eight people from his party in with him. And they're always weird, like weather presenters of yore and... <laughs> strange people who have yeah no kidding man they're, they're, New Zealand's got a penchant for bringing in uh, weather presenters into parliament it's a <laughs> it's becoming an interesting <laughs> phenomenon but anyway he so he's positioned this party that can kind of go wherever the wind blows and always ensure that he gets a bit of uh, power and, I, I like um, the pun by I, the way I appreciate the I, I like the wind blow thing it was very good oh man that was completely unintentional <laughs> oh no <laughs> that's how good a comedian I am. It's just in my DNA. But uh, so yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have more Winston Peters, a man who I kind of detest. He's again, he's very like anti press. He was attacking journalists pretty much the entire uh, last two weeks of the election, just calling everyone stupid and calling out their stupid questions and accusing everyone of being too young to cover politics. So all of that classic bullshit that I'm sure you're used to from old members of the right. Yeah, but we've got a government. And the Greens have, uh, they are part of the coalition, but they are sort of like a, a more diet version of being part of it. They don't hold any cabinet positions, but they are going to have some uh, ministers from their party grabbing portfolios and areas that they focus on. So the environment, uh, and this isn't official, but this has all kind of been leaked or floated. I think they're going to get minister for the environment, uh, something to do with children or vulnerable children. Uh, and James Shaw, who is the leader of the party, and I think a former economist, or he comes from a business background, is going to be the associate finance uh, minister, which is a, a cool thing as well. And the first big ticket uh, agenda, which has been announced that the Greens managed to negotiate as part of the deal, is it looks like New Zealand <clears throat> is going to have a referendum on recreational use of marijuana. And it might even be a binding referendum, which means that whatever we decide has to be turned into law, Woohoo! which I am pumped about because <clears throat> I've 
long been a huge advocate for legalization of marijuana. I think that the just the tax take alone and what you can do with that money by regulating the industry and removing the criminal element from from having it involved in the supply chain is huge. And in New Zealand, we smoke a shitload of weed, like a lot. <laughs> I th- we are always in the top three countries in the world for consuming weed by head of population, and we have been number one. Uh, in the past, we're better, than, better. I say better, not bigger, but better than Jamaica at it. We smoke a ton of weed, so the the climate here is so good for it. And it's it would be great if we got some of our dairy farmers and turned them into cannabis growers because it's so much better for the environment, doesn't pollute the rivers, and I think it could be a tremendous thing for New Zealand. So if it um, if this referendum comes to pass, I am honestly going to put myself out there and campaign for public education to to try and convince some people and do some fucking door knocking around this because i think it is such a weird um hangover from the past that we still have a prohibition on on marijuana it's crazy just out of curiosity is the is the referendum built in uh, does it build in anything um what I, I don't know like how much it's been written out but i know some of the, the, the backlash against some marijuana referenda referenda here in the United States have been, and in this case, I think particularly in Ohio, was that the legalization program was, uh, the, the regime was so costly that it would only really benefit uh, companies like uh, tobacco companies that could then just open up a division of marijuana rather than uh, enable like startups and or like the the equivalent of craft beer industry uh, for sure. marijuana. Is there is is it like something that's going to be beneficial for small business growth? It is way too early to tell, but based on just the the um, culture in New Zealand, I would be shocked if b- big business managed to corner this issue. We are um, built on small to medium-sized businesses, and uh, I think there would be a real hiss and a roar if it turned out that only... We're actually... New Zealand's kind of on a pathway to try and get rid of cigarettes and tobacco entirely by, I think it's 2050, um, as a stated goal from government, which I've kind of got... That's where my slight libertarian leanings on certain issues come in, and I'm kind of like not that down with it, but I think it's great from a public health perspective, obviously. But we get... um, Billions and billions of dollars from tobacco in New Zealand, even just with the restricted um, use that it experiences today. There's not that many smokers, comparatively speaking, left. And uh, I think it is a, it's, it, it's a tricky issue without getting too into the weeds with this one because it's been overtaxed to fuck in New Zealand, cigarettes and tobacco have, uh, because... The policymakers always know that no one's going to question it because they can say it's a public health issue, but it really affects poor people because they're the ones who are still smoking. And it leads to a lot of things like increased armed robberies in corner stores here. Um, so, but look, the good thing is is that the the Greens appear to have negotiated that as a as a as policy that we're going to get a referendum at some point during this first term, and I'm. So excited about that. There's some other bad news, but that's the main ticket good news from from my agenda. Right. I mean, on, I'm I'm very happy for you guys. I'm also happy for myself to know that really there, deep down there was a chemical secret behind Kiwi amiab- amiability. Oh, yeah. It's a pretty open secret, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, There's been a lot of research into it. We smoke a lot of weed. I thought it was innate, but really, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, 
it's you guys are you guys are, are taking a a supplement you know it'd be like me uh me going on uh andrew andrews andrastenedone and and hitting a home run you know the world would be a better place if we could all just get over the um reefer madness propaganda of the 50s you know a better place indeed and it all starts here so there's there's good stuff on the horizon but it will be interesting to see how this new zealand coalition government moves and operates because um I mean, you've got the New Zealand First Party who aren't quite antithetical to Labour's policy direction, but there's some things that they really disagree on. And the distance between what New Zealand First wants and what the Green Party want for New Zealand's future is pretty fucking huge. So it's going to be interesting to see those fights play out. But um, ultimately, it's it's a pretty cool thing. We've got this centre-left-leaning government with um, this incredibly dynamic and... Uh, articulate fantastic prime minister who's 37 years old she's she's kind of like Jacinda Ardern is I think what you need in a leader which is you kind of need a rallying point for the troops you need someone who's an effective communicator and a great symbol of the ideals that you want everyone following they don't have to be I don't think tremendous on policy and all the nitty-gritty stuff I think that's for people lower down the chain but I think the leader of the party you need to have a big visible direction leader and I think that's what she is and I'm I'm super stoked for the country that it's gone this way but it could go to shit <laughs> so we'll see all right um and just quickly as well Jeb one last story that's just percolated up which I don't think either of us have had a chance to um find out a ton about because it's it's literally just been sort of percolating today but there is a man uh by the name of uh, Bill Browder, who is a, essentially I want to call him like a hedge fund CEO. He developed his own investment firm and he was originally American. He um, became a British citizen and uh, what do you call when you you give up your US citizenship? Revoke? I think you renounce your citizenship? Renounce. Yeah, he he renounced it um, basically so he wouldn't have to keep paying tax uh, to Uncle Sam, which is by the by. But he's just had his U.S. visa pulled, um, and this is interesting because he's a prominent critic of uh, the Kremlin and of Vladimir Putin. And in fact, he I think managed to successfully lobby under the Obama administration a law whereby uh, yeah, I got it the, was something to do with I, I can yeah, I can handle do, this. So do, so Browder is yeah, he's a hedge fund hedge fund manager of Hermitage Capital Management, and they were. Uh, basically one of those firms that went into Russia as it opened up post-communism and was looking to invest in, in uh, you know, local industry and, you know, basically being a you know, kind of a startup furthering uh, concern. And uh, what happened was the, uh, the Putin, uh, you know, the, the Putin regime pulled one of their favorite tricks where they, they went in and said, look, you owe, you know, all this money in taxes basically to just steal their assets uh, by arbitrarily just uh, assigning this, this, uh, you know, like, tax delinquency so he uh this guy hired an accountant to basically disprove that and uh he had they had been critical of the putin regime in the past they had often kind of like publicly released information about where you know kleptocratic practices were taking place um the accountant he hired was a guy named sergey magnitsky who then wound up being seized by the fsb uh, effectively tortured and then died in prison. The U.S. Act, named after him, the Magnitsky, Magnitsky Act, places a lot of uh, 
restrictive burdens on how people who benefit from the Putin kleptocracy can move their money into the United States and whether people in the United States can invest in them in the in uh, in the Russian Federation. So that has been a, the repeal of that has been a goal of uh, Putin for a long time. So this seems like the the pulling of his visa. It's on the report of uh, uh, of Russia saying that he is further delinquent in his taxes, if I'm not mistaken. Is that what you had read? That he had his U.S. Um, visa revoked. Sorry, were you saying that that was the thing that prompted it? Yeah, because if you are like, I think via Interpol regulations, right? If you have a warrant out against you, it restricts your travel. So his his visa got pulled because Russia is essentially trolling him. They dinged him. They yeah. want him, you know, for arrest for a crime he may. V- I, and I, I I have not seen any details of their allegations, but I'm willing to bet he didn't commit. Uh, but now he can't travel. Um, so previously, uh, Interpol had actually rejected a request from the Russian government to um, basically enact a, a a similar restriction on his travel, and um, because they saw that it was a blindly political move. So it's, I, I, I mean, I again, I don't know the exact uh, details of this case versus that one, but it's interesting that they've picked this one up and that the US have sort of enforced it. And there's a number of um, lawmakers who have already come to. Bill Browder's aid and and calling out uh, the Trump administration's kind of upholding of this um, bizarre move, well, predictable but absurd move from the Russian government. Uh, John McCain's already come out in support for him, and uh, there are some others that I can just see on Twitter, which he's kind of shouting out now, who are coming forward to fight in his corner. So yeah, no, it's I mean this seems to be pretty transparent to me like why the, the Putin regime would target him I mean he is in many respects their bet noir because they they couldn't get to him he could you know he still had money he could leave and he is the living face of what happened to Sergei Mag- Magnitsky so this is something that's obviously only just happened recently and we'll have to um, see what happens but it'll be interesting to see if he can have his US visa reinstated and then I mean this is going to establish him as a bigger mouthpiece than he ever was before. It's the Streisand effect, you know, happening in real time that we'll be able to observe. So you can see what will happen playing out with that in the next little while. Um, Jeb, is there anything else that you want to mention before we sort of curtail this thing off? Yeah, no, you're talking about the the relatively low-tech part of New Zealand elections uh, made me think of a story came out today in Mother Jones that I think you would enjoy. Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who is your vote suppressor-in-chief, he heads uh, the Trump Commission on uh, you know illegal voting, and uh, it, you may remember he uh, uh, he showed up to his first meeting with the Trump administration with a binder with a piece of paper on it, on which uh, you could actually read some of the text from photos, and that uh, that document was successfully subpoenaed by the ACLU uh, over his strenuous objections, and it, it revealed. Uh, uh, a plan to suspend the uh, not suspend, but rather modify the Clinton era motor voter law, which allows you to register to vote when you go to get a driver's license. And his suggested modification to that is that states can demand that you provide additional documents uh, to verify that you should be able to vote. Now, most of those documents will come with certain conditions like you would need to bring your birth certificate but it has to be a copy of your original and obtaining a copy of your original birth certificate in the state that enacts these uh uh these laws may 
you know, it may cost you $100. So if you're a poor person, you may choose not to register to vote because you don't want to spend $100 getting a copy of your birth certificate. But uh, on top of that, we have other good news from him. Uh, he has a, a program called the Interstate Crosscheck Program, which I think about 30 states participate in. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure on the number right now. Um, but what it does is they pool their voter data to try to trap people who are voting in multiple places. And it's, it's the attempt to stop voter fraud. Now, crosscheck is really fucking unreliable. And in fact, uh, right. like evidently, it has like a 200 to 1 failure rate. So for every incidence of voter fraud, it actually can detect. And most of those incidences are completely accidental. Um, it, it dings about 200 people who are voting legally because the only correlation it has is name and birth date. And there are a lot of people named John Smith born every day. So um, yeah. so it's already a, a completely fucked system only designed to keep minorities from voting. I mean, we, we already know this, but it's all being run off an unsecured FTP uh, server managed by the Arkansas supervisor of elections. So you can you can basically crack this. You can get 30 states voter rolls, including full names, birth dates, addresses and the last four digits of their social security number very, very easily. And then making matters even worse the passwords to access this for everyone no, I, involved. We're going out with 80, 100 people on the CC field. So if any one of those people was subject to a phishing scam, so you're, you're up to like nearly 100 people who have the complete password list for accessing this FTP server and this whole database of, of names, social security numbers, and birth dates. Holy fuck, man. What is even the point of this combined with the Equifax thing? It's just no personal data is even having the most basic protection applied to it from from really, really big corporates or the public sector. I'm, this is kind of leading me in a direction where it's like, you know what? Maybe Google should just be in charge of everything because at least they can secure data well at this point. Yeah, but it's going to turn out that at least one of the people who founded Google is like really, really deeply into neo-fascism. Uh, this is just, I mean, I don't know. Like the fact that if we went to like the, the, the Arkansas Secretary of State page for the cross-check program, the fact that like Safari would give you a warning saying, you are about to access an unsecured website. Do you wish to continue? I mean, that's fucking depressing. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy shit. Oh, man. When are we going to learn about computers, eh? Ah, just yeah, burn your phone. That's it. Just you know, use your use your computer for pornography and like saying hi to your family. That's it. That's all we need it for. And Wikipedia, I'll give it Wikipedia. What a great, what a fantastic piece of advice to end the show on. Um, well, that so everyone, it, make sure you clear every other app out of your phone that isn't pornography. Uh, instant messaging with your family. Don't confuse the two things. That'll lead to an embarrassing situation for everyone and you won't be able to go to Thanksgiving dinner. And the podcast app. You can catch us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, but <laughs> He's good. I don't know if He's I don't know if we, slick. I don't know if you can do all those. Just just do the iTunes thing. It's like no it's a no brainer. Just do that. Yeah. Uh well that's it. That's it for politics this week. And I would like to say thank you very much, Jeb, for making this possible despite the fact that you are um with your folks and out of town really appreciate you making the time yeah and thank you you know th thank you for n not starting another tv series automatically that was uh, <laughs> we've got like a month before you 
it's like well, Tim is off on a pilot. So, uh, you know, take it easy until then. I, Rest up, recharge your posting batteries. Indeed. Hopefully I'll be able to um, to record. That'll be happening in America while I'm shooting that. So that that should uh, should be sweet. But anyway, that's for another day. Um, thanks very much, everybody. You can follow, and you should follow Jeb on Twitter at Mabute, and you can follow me, Tim underscore Bat. Um, but, I mean, follow Jeb first, because mainly for me it's it's periodic postings of comedy shows that are happening in New Zealand that I'm involved with, so I don't know how relevant that is to your interests. But otherwise, we'll catch you in the next episode. See you, Jeb. Adios. I was the main advocate for the um, Canadian Magnitsky Act and the U.S. Magnitsky Act, and so Vladimir Putin put me on the Interpol Most Wanted list. He's been trying to do this for many years. Um, uh, he's been rejected by Interpol four times, but he succeeded at least temporarily in getting me on the list last week. And strangely, the U.S. visa system seems to be tied up with the Russian Interpol list because my uh, visa in going into America was immediately canceled. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.